Welcome back to another exciting episode of Mr. Cornwell's Corner. Hey everybody, Mr. Cornwell here. Welcome back to the corner. On today's exciting episode, we're going to travel way back in time to the beginning of the 20th century to what's known as the Progressive Era. The Progressive Era is a term we use a lot in U.S. history, but we don't always define. Basically, the latter part of the 19th century up to the beginning of the 20th century. So if you're talking years, it's like the later 1890s up through the end of World War I, which is around 1920. So we're talking really the first couple decades of the 1900s. Progressive means things are changing, and there's a lot of reforms that come down during this time period, hence Progressive Era, or it's time of great change in the United States. On today, we're just going to kind of focus on the muckrakers. Muckrakers is a term that Theodore Roosevelt coined in a speech he gave as part of a speech to Congress on April 14, 1906. He calls them the man with the muckrake. Um, What that loosely means today is like digging up dirt on somebody. So muckrakers are investigative journalists who worked to expose the ills of society at the beginning of the 20th century, politically, industrially, economically, and bring attention to them so they could lead to change or reforms. There's several muckrakers, you know, hundreds of them you can imagine, but we're going to focus on just a couple muckrakers today. Three we're going to focus on is... Upton Sinclair and his famous work, The Jungle. Ida Tarbell and her famous work, The History of the Standard Oil Company. Let's just say that Rockefeller was not proud of that book. And the third one is Jacob Rees and his famous work, How the Other Half Lives, which was a photo book. We'll take this short break and we'll be back in just a few minutes and we'll get started with Upton Sinclair and The Jungle. All right, welcome back. I hope you enjoyed Guns N' Roses' version of The Jungle. It seemed appropriate to play since we're covering Upton Sinclair and his jungle, but I'm not alone on this part of the podcast. I have a, a former student by the name of Ezra Thompson is joining me. Ezra, how's it going? 
It's good. It's good. So you had me last year. That means are you a senior? I'm a senior at East Coweta High School. So we don't have to worry about hurrying up and finishing this podcast today so you can catch the bus. You drive yourself? Oh, yeah. As we first talked about doing this podcast, I kind of let you choose the topic. So my first question would be, why Upton Sinclair? Why the jungle? Why would you go to this? What what, what was the appeal for you? I, I really like how um, how during this, this era, this progressive era, that issues that were prominent during this time were exposed and change was actually being made. Well, if you're talking about exposition and changes, no better place to start than with Upton Sinclair in the jungle. So um, for those who don't know, Upton Sinclair was born September 20th, 1878, and lived till November 25th, 1968, which last time I checked, that makes him 90 years old on his death. If you want to go visit him today, he's resting comfortably at Rock Creek Cemetery in Washington, D.C. He did many things in his life. What he's most noted for is his writing ability. So where did he go to school, Ezra? Sinclair graduated from Columbia University in New York City, and he was a cardholder in the Socialist Party. Now, I would like to know more about the Socialist Party. So if you remember back from world history, socialism is an idea that grows out of the 19th century. It's a system of government, and it's also an economic system. And communism is just a more severe form of socialism. So basically what socialism is, in a nutshell, it's redistribution of wealth. So in a truly socialistic society, or the socialist party, what their goal is to put a ceiling on how much money you can make. And if you have a ceiling, you need a floor and a minimum on how much money you can make. So in a truly socialist party... You don't have any Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos. There are nobody that makes billions of dollars. Now, that cap might be $100 million, might be $1 billion, might be $10 billion. Whatever society agrees that cap is, and how can a government make sure you don't make over $10 million? How does the government take your money? Taxes. Yeah, so at some threshold, whatever you make is just taxed at 100%. So if you're Elon Musk and let's say it's $100 million, Income tax, if that's the maximum this year, anything, let's say he makes a billion dollars, he keeps 100 million, 900 million goes into the government coffers, 100% tax rate once you reach the threshold. And then at the end, let's say the $50,000 is the minimum. So if I go out and I make $28,000, instead of me paying taxes at tax season, I'll get a check for $22,000. So it's basically what you're talking is the redistribution of wealth taking money from some people and giving it to other people. That's the idea of socialism, where you don't have any really rich corporations or rich individuals running the show, no Carnegie's, no Rockefeller's, and you don't have a lot of poor people. So you can see how this movement becomes very popular, especially when you have a lot of poor people in the society. So ideally, everyone would be equal. Everyone's a middle class, yeah. In a true socialistic country, you should have a large middle class, correct? So... Sinclair was a member of the Socialist Party from 1902 to 1934 until he transferred to the Democratic Party in 1934. So he's the Bernie Sanders of the early 20th century. He's a Democratic Socialist at heart. You know anything else about him or his family? He was also the cousin of Wallace Simpson. Ooh, she sounds familiar. I should know who that is. But I don't. Do you remember who's Wallace Simpson? Edward? Oh, that's right. She's the American who winds up falling in love with, uh, this is like Romeo and Juliet stuff here. Wallace Simpson falls in love with Edward VIII, who's the king of England, but he's not allowed to marry her because she's not from the right family, so he decides to do what? I remember this now. He abdicates the throne. He gives up 
being king so he can marry Wallace Simpson. Now that's a woman there. So, yep, she was cousins with Upton Sinclair. His book, The Jungle, is what why we're talking about him today. It basically comes out in a serial form, which means monthly magazine. It's like an article for every month from like February to November in 1905. And then later, it's put into a book form. So what he's doing, he goes undercover in Chicago, Illinois. He gets a job at a meatpacking plant in Chicago, Illinois. And then he writes this book in a narrative form. So what can you tell us about the book, The Jungle? So like you said, it was, it was published as a novel in 1905 into um, a socialist magazine, which was Appeal to Reason. Basically, he created a character, which was Jurgis Rudkus, who was a Lithuanian immigrant who, who came in from... Lithuania is in Eastern Europe? Yes, is an Eastern European country. Okay, so Jurgis Rudkus, he was an, a Lithuanian immigrant who immigrated from Lithuania into America to, to achieve the American dream, but he realized that he was, he, he was later to be treated unfairly and receive poor hospitality due to capitalism, basically. So what is the American dream? That is a great question. That's a great question. A lot of people define that dream differently. I think what most people in the 20th century define the American dream as growing up, being able to afford your own house, having one car, 2.5 kids, picket fence, basically middle America, not being super wealthy, but not being poor. And you realize in many countries around the world, that's not even an achievable. That's, that's not a goal. So what most people come looking for what they call the American dream is achieving a certain level of economic independence, which allows you to live life the way you want to live. I'm not talking super wealthy, but I'm talking wealthy enough where you can take care of yours and your family. So, so he's from Lithuania, Eastern Europe. He grows up as a peasant, which is very poor, and he migrates over here looking for the American dream. He's looking to become upper middle class. And how does it go for Jurgis once he gets a job in Chicago? Uh, what does he call it? He don't call it Chicago. Calls it um, Packtown? Packingtown. 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 That's Packingtown. It. So when, when Jurgis Rudkus comes over and relocates to Packingtown, what does he find out about the American dream? He, he realizes how, how unfair his treatment is and how poor the conditions are of his environment. So why doesn't he just work a double shift to get ahead 16 hours a day? He doesn't. He doesn't have the opportunity to. He just the, the wages are just too low to. Oh, because of wage imbalance. No matter how much he works, he can work three shifts a day, which is twenty four hours. He's never going to be able to achieve what he thought he could achieve because of the imbalance in labor, imbalance in economics from business owners to labor. So, what does he discover is the solution to this problem? He, he realizes that socialism is ideal. That's what, that's what Sinclair's idea was with this novel, was to expose capitalism and criticize it and promote his socialistic ideologies. So Sinclair goes undercover in Chicago. He uses Rudkiss as a Lithuanian immigrant, a made-up guy from Eastern Europe, who represents millions of real people, who comes over here, who is looking for the American dream, who believes in the United States, who believes in capitalism to get ahead, and they become disillusioned because... No matter how hard they work, they never can quite achieve that dream. Is that fair okay. assessment? Yes. And to rectify that situation, he's saying you should turn to socialism. Socialism. Which we've already discussed in here. How does Sinclair feel about his book? Because it becomes a national bestseller in 1906. So how does he really feel about his book? Well, The Jungle was, was insanely popular during this time, but it wasn't for the reason that he wanted to. 
he wrote he wrote pages on that exposed the meatpacking industry, and that's what really gained the the public's eye. So he writes a three hundred page book about socialism. It's basically the Socialist Manifesto: Why the United States Should Embrace Socialism and Ditch Capitalism. But everybody now and everybody in nineteen oh six only read the eight pages related to the meatpacking industry. Correct. So he famously says, "Quote: I aimed at the public's heart, but by accident hit it in the stomach." Does that sound like a man, man that's content to you? No, no, definitely not. So, so instead of socialism, everybody's just talking about the meat. So let's get into the meatpacking. Um, what does he expose specifically in the meatpacking industry? So, Mr. Cornwell, can you, can you tell me about the conditions in the meatpacking industry? Sinclair gets a job in Chicago. He works during the day and observes and then goes home at night and writes. And, and this is just one small part of the jungle But what happens is he basically writes what he sees in these plants, and some of it is pretty disgusting. Like meat that was sent from Chicago to New York over to overseas would be rejected in Europe, be sent back to New York, back to Chicago. By that point, it's rancid and rotten, and instead of discarding the meat, they would store that meat, and when the room got full, they'd bring it out and douse it with chemical agents. Borax, like Clorox today, and then regrind it and sell it to guess who? Americans. East Coweta High School, enjoy your lunch this afternoon. Yeah, for home consumptions without telling anybody. There's many reasons why the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, the average life expectancy was around 50 instead of 78 like today. This is just one of those reasons. Of course, that's just one example. He also talks about potted spam. And no, it's not the spam in your store, so don't worry about that if you like spam. So basically, in these large warehouses where they were processing meat, like sausage, they would process meat throughout the day, and as you're doing that, some of the meat would fall on the floor. Then young kids would come in at night, sweep up the floor. Well, most of these are dirt floors, and to keep the dust down, you put like sawdust or hay or straw or something down. And the guys working there, uh, this is, we're still getting around by horse, so there's horse dung in the streets. And most of these guys spit tobacco, and not all of them are good shots into this platoon. So by the end of the day, when they're swept up, you've got sausage, straw, horse dung, tobacco juice, whatever else on the floor, and they store these in rooms so you've got plenty of rats. And then eventually they'll, re- they'll process that stuff, and that's sold as potted spam or potted ham, really, what we call spam today. That is not what I want to be eating. No, no. And, of course, millions of Americans didn't know they're buying this. So when this book comes out, uh, who's president? Teddy. Yeah, if you remember, he's a game changer. He's the progressive, progressive president. So when this book comes out, Roosevelt's president, and I don't know if you recall or not, but Roosevelt's a speed reader. Like, he could read a book in two hours and remember it almost word for word. So he reads this book right away, and the first thing Roosevelt says is, no way. So is Roosevelt going to take the word of a young, unknown socialist like Upton Sinclair? No, of course not. So what does he do? He's going to check it out himself. So he sends inspectors there, and when they go to Chicago, they find out that, if anything, Sinclair undersold it. The conditions are actually worse than what he wrote in his book. So what does Teddy decide to do when he gets involved? What does Teddy get Congress to do? So Teddy gets Congress to pass the Meat Inspection Act, and as well as the Pure Food and Drug Act, which will later lead to the establishment of the FDA. So what is the Meat Inspection Act? What's the purpose of that? What does that allow the government to do? So this act gives the government the ability to inspect any, any food plants. 
they can schedule food inspections for the meat plants. And what about can they show up unannounced? They can come whenever they want to see what's going on. And, and what if I say no and don't let them in? It doesn't matter. It's the government. Well, they have the ability to fine you, and if you continue to do it, they can shut your plant down. What Roosevelt is saying is if, if you're not going to clean up these warehouses, we'll do it for you. So he forces these owners to clean up their warehouses so where the meat coming out of there is not rancid rotten. And what's the FDA? What's the purpose of the FDA? Well, the FDA creates regulations to, on food to make sure to ensure that it's safe for the public. So what we're really talking about here is Roosevelt using the government to regulate business. Pretty much. In this, in this case, meat and food and drugs. So, so if a com- company today like Kraft wants to sell macaroni and cheese, they have to put all that nutrition information, label. Uh, do they do that out of the goodness of their heart? Oh, no. So why do they do it today? Because of the FDA. Oh, that, that makes they sense. They have to. So, so can you imagine writing a book today? This is 2022, and it comes out and not only becomes a national bestseller, which makes you rich and famous, it also leads to not one but two acts of Congress, two laws. How would you feel about that book? If, if it was me personally, I'd be, pretty, I'd be pretty proud of myself. And do you remember what Sinclair said about it? He said that I aimed at the public's heart and by accident got in the stomach. Doesn't sound real content to me, does it? No, definitely not. But it did help him out personally. He becomes rich and famous. He got, he got some cash out of it. Correct. He, he didn't get exactly what he wanted. but All right. Well, let's go ahead and take our last break, and um, we'll be back to wrap up the muckrakers. Ezra, thank you very much for joining us. I hope you had fun. I, I had a great time. And maybe you can come back in a future episode. You'll, you'll see me in the future. All right. We'll be right back. Get on down to your local Ford dealer and get the brand new Model T while supplies last. Debuting last year in 1908, the Model T, or 10 Lizzie as it was known, features a 20-horsepower engine, which will give you over 17 miles per gallon on average with a blistering top speed of 45 miles per hour. This is the car for the common man. This car can take you anywhere you want to go. It comes with an optional windshield. And as our founder, Henry Ford, famously says, the Model T is available in any color as long as the color you want is black. So be sure to get on down to your local Ford dealer for as cheap as $850. This is not the rich man's car. This car is for every man. So we'll see you soon and get yours while supplies last. Welcome back. In the last segment, we were discussing Upton Sinclair and his groundbreaking work, The Jungle. Now I'd like to shift gears slightly to another famous muckraker by the name of Ida Tarbell. Ida is best known for her work, which is a book titled The History of the Standard Oil Company. Now, Ida herself is from western Pennsylvania, a small town called Titusville. Her father was an oil man. He made his living in the oil industry, but he was a small oil company. And he was one of many that Rockefeller's Standard Oil, much larger corporation, had driven out of business in the late 19th century. This was very personal for Ida. She's a journalist, biographer. She's written a biography of Lincoln before, so she's an experienced writer. What Ida's most famous for is the history of the Standard Oil Company, which at the time she's writing for McClure's Magazine. So this was investigative journalism, and it was a series of articles that came out in a monthly magazine and over time was turned into a book. So what she really did was put the spotlight on 
the Standard Oil Company, and John D. Rockefeller's business practices for the last 30-plus years. And a lot of this is not good history. She's responsible for bringing a lot of the business practices Rockefeller was engaged in to light. A lot of these weren't necessarily illegal at the time, but they are today. And this is the reason why they are today. It's because the government gets involved and starts to reform. So her famous work leads to government regulation of not just Standard Oil, but big business in general. By the 21st century, Teddy Roosevelt's president of the United States and his government takes action. Roosevelt's the first president to take on big business and have success. Through his administration, eventually the Standard Oil Company gets broken up into several other companies, which are still around today. The biggest of those is ExxonMobil, is a subsidiary I used to be part of, Standard Oil Company. So Ida Tarbell is most known for exposing Rockefeller and Standard Oil illicit business practices. One other famous muckraker you need to know is Jacob Reese. Jacob Reese was born in Denmark. He grew up in Denmark, went to school there. So he's Danish. He did not come to the United States until he was 21 years old. He is also an investigative journalist, but unlike those muckrakers, he didn't write about it. He took pictures. He's a photojournalist. So his most famous work is titled How the Other Half Lives. And what he does at the end of the 1880s is he goes all over New York City and takes pictures of immigrants, of slums, poor people, how they're living in the streets, how they're living in cardboard boxes, the filth, how disgusting it is. And then he publishes those pictures. And those pictures shock many people when they see for themselves the true conditions that millions of people in the United States are living in. What Jacob Reese does is really bring to light the conditions of inner-city slums starts to lead to reforms of the inner-city slums by our government as well. Now, Jacob Reese goes on in the 1890s to be good friends with Theodore Roosevelt. Um, Theodore Roosevelt, before becoming president and vice president and secretary of the Navy, in the 1890s, he was the board of commissioners for the New York Police Department. In the 1890s, the New York Police Department was pretty corrupt, so what Roosevelt would do is he would go out on night patrols in the middle of the night, and he would keep an eye on his own officers, and Jacob Reese was one of his buddies that would go with him. Reese would be able to take pictures and write stories, and these stories and pictures would be in the newspaper the next day. The first time Jacob Reese went with Teddy, there was over 90%, every 9 out of 10 cops weren't on duty where they're supposed to be. Roosevelt does is puts pressure on the police to do their jobs and helps clean up the corruption in New York City in the 1890s, and Jacob Reese was a small part of that. All right, well, I hope you've enjoyed this discussion on these muckrakers. The three muckrakers you need to know are Upton Sinclair, Ida Tarbell, and Jacob Reese. And I especially want to thank our guest host today, Ezra Thompson, and maybe we can talk him into coming back. We'll see you next time around the corner. Thank you for listening to another exciting episode of Mr. Cornwell's Corner. Be sure to hit that like button, subscribe, and ring that bell so you never miss another episode. See you next time. I am Blaine Jaffe, the voice of the intro and exit for Mr. Cornwell's Corner. Thank you for listening.